Welcome to Banjo Strings and Drinking Gourds, How America Culture Came to Be, the podcast of the Frontier Culture Museum of Virginia. I'm Alex. And I'm Rachel. Today we've invited Misty, lead interpreter for the Eastern Woodlands Indian Site, to talk about difficult subjects and how and why we interpret them. Misty, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your background and experiences as an interpreter? All right, sure. Um, I've been here at the Frontier Culture Museum for eight years, but I've been a museum educator for almost 21 years. I started my career as an interpreter in Colonial Williamsburg, and I remember a feeling that there was just so much to learn that it was a bit overwhelming. So I narrowed my focus into things that I was interested in, such as daily life for the average, not gentry woman. Um, I loved gardening, so I focused on plants and their uses for food and medicine and started looking more into the roles of women in the much larger socio-political realm of early American history. It really was a pretty short hop from there for my interest to turn to the daily lives of the women whose voices aren't as readily apparent in history, especially those of women from marginalized communities like the enslaved and indigenous peoples. Um, That interest only increased and broadened as I grew as an interpreter. And My work at Colonial Williamsburg, Virginia State Parks, the National Park Service, and here at the Frontier Culture Museum has given me a broad range of perspectives as well as allowed me to delve deeper into studying history that can be very challenging, the quote unquote, difficult subjects like enslavement, minimization of women's roles in Eastern Woodlands cultures. I guess I really like the challenge of studying and interpreting the things that people can have a hard time talking about. So how would you define difficult history? That's not a term most of our listeners are probably familiar with. All right. Well, I really prefer the term hard history or traumatic history because I think the connotation is that something that's difficult is an irritation. Um, That might just be me, though. But regardless of terminology, these hard history subjects are the histories of oppression, violence and or trauma. Um, They describe memories of pain, suffering or grief. And the things we describe, especially when using primary source material, can evoke strong emotions and cause people to express feelings of anxiety, stress, or resistance. These histories can and do challenge our beliefs about our world, our societies, and our past. Furthermore, this emotional response may mean that visitors have to probably navigate a crisis moment where they either accept the information, which, as I mentioned, can cause them to question everything they thought they knew or were taught, or to reject the information. The former may mean that they could feel compelled to change their worldview, but the latter means they could simply maintain the status quo. Now, we might not always know the route that people will go with this information, but maybe just discussing these topics will provoke them to learn more. Although it is really rewarding when you actually do get to see those, as you said, crisis moments, or the realization that maybe there's more people taught or heard of in history, Uh, For instance, I was on an outreach once, and we were talking about slave cockles, how slaves were transported across land of Western Africa towards the ships before being taken over to the New World. And this one little girl just burst into angry tears and just said, it's not fair. Why did this happen? It's not fair. So there's definitely a resonance there with these harder stories. Absolutely. Hard history, however, is not false history. So it's not modern multiculturalism. America's always been diverse. 
America has not, however, always been equitable, and a surface look at history doesn't bring us any closer to fully meeting the ideals of freedom and democracy. If we want to celebrate the foundations of American democracy, we also need to examine what, in building that foundation, weaken those lofty goals. So, in short, this isn't a rewrite of history, it's actual history, but let's get back to this a little bit later. George Erasmus, who was an Aboriginal leader from Canada, once said, where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. So you have to wonder, do we have real community right now? We're definitely further along in the process of gaining it than we were in the past, but to overlook hard history in favor of more awe-inspiring history means that we're forgoing the opportunity to be truly united in the United States. So why do we want to teach hard history? It seems like it's easier to just go with general trends of history or stick to the lighter subjects with visitors. I mean, I get what you're saying, but you know, we have a unique opportunity to teach people here at the museum. We've got people from a broad range of experiences and backgrounds, and recent studies indicate that museums are some of the most trusted institutions beyond the media and even other educational institutions. We provide a public forum for issues that challenge society, and we can address these topics in ways that our visitors can grasp. I mean, this is especially true in living history museums that employ third-person interpretation like we do, because we often have more conversational, contextual opportunities compared to other methods of interpretation, like first-person interpretation or lectures in classroom settings. You know, really, the root of it is intangible cultural ideas can be connected to tangible objects and activities, for instance, like cooking. People understand food, and we have emotional memories tied to food and family and culture. Many of the foods we associate, for instance, in Southern cooking, were modifications made by enslaved people using ingredients sometimes introduced by indigenous people or brought by the slave trade, grown on lands taken from those same native peoples by Europeans coming to these shores to seek opportunities that weren't exactly available to them in Europe. And I mean, there's absolutely discomfort in the story, right? But these cultural intersections are a lot easier for guests to understand when food is the vehicle used to communicate the complexity and dynamics nature of slavery and colonization. Work performed on our farms is definitely a form of experimental archaeology, but it also shows our guests what everyday life was like for the people who lived the everyday in the past. And that includes indigenous experience, the everyday of, you know, farmers, daily duties of women, and so on. And so the classic hallmarks of culture, food, music, and dress are also a part of this more holistic insight into history. Sometimes the more nuanced stories can be illustrated. For example, a discussion of both work and resistance of enslaved people shows up in song. The choices of what people purchased, sometimes those choices being out of their expected class, is seen in material culture, and the provisioning of households is examined through foodways, and so on.
You mentioned discomfort. Can you expand on the impact of emotion on learning? Sure. Um, I know that I personally made a lot of my coworkers quite emotional in a storytelling exercise we did a few years back. So we had Sheila Arnold. She's a well-known storyteller, and I worked with her once at Colonial Williamsburg. She was visiting as a guest lecturer, and I used an account of an adoption by Haudenosaunee women during the Morning Wars, so not to go into too great detail, but in the Morning Wars, women could decide if they wanted to revenge the death of the men from their clan or adopt a European captive. So I personally drew on this example because we lost our daughter to pediatric cancer, and therefore I discovered I had great empathy to these sorts of stories in history. And that emotion can sometimes be cathartic, and I know it definitely gives me a sort of connection to those women. And, you know, ultimately that makes it more poignant for the audience. This may not be something that's easy to answer, or in fact, answerable in just one podcast, but why hasn't this type of American history been taught in schools in the past? All right, well, first of all, much of American history is, you know, in the current United States is indigenous history. Um, European American history is another thing entirely, but that's what most people are talking about when they refer to American history. So we're going to focus on that. In the colonial era, only wealthy gentlemen were taught history, and really their focus was on classical Greek and Roman history with an Enlightenment spin. So philosophers like John Locke influenced our founding documents, and that was what was taught as educational opportunities went beyond the wealthy. As a young country, American history was often utilized as a nation-building tool. We're not the only ones that have ever done this. Now bear in mind, at the same moment, People were being held in bondage and justifications were made to take lands, enslave people, and to treat women as second-class citizens. In a nation where it said in the founding documents that freedom ultimately meant opportunity, people who played a part in the physical building of this nation weren't legally or socially viewed as worthy of acquiring opportunity, and they were generally overlooked or sublimated. You know, Jefferson knew that both his wealth and his home were entirely built by the human beings that he enslaved, but their humanity was of little consequence because they were his property. You know, the Civil War and its end saw really no major change in the way Americans were taught history, except for much more of the emphasis was on the, you know, on the origins of uh, European American history varied sectionally. You know, so that, for instance, is why we have such an emphasis on Plymouth over Jamestown and religious freedoms, which by the way, folks, so-called pilgrims were just as focused on profit as Jamestown. Um, you know, and Thanksgiving is celebrated, um, you know, over the end of starving time, that sort of thing. Now the earliest era for professional historians though, was in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And these historians grew up in, in an era of widespread emphasis on the ascendancy of whites and their manifest destiny, and they had this all bolstered by the pseudoscience of eugenics. The first well-known scholar of Southern history was Ulrich B. Phillips. In his 30-year career, he published nine books, 60 articles, and taught in several universities, culminating in a, as he puts it, very flossy position at Yale. Now, 
You may not have ever heard of Phillips, but his legacy can still be seen today because the people Phillips taught went on to teach new students and teachers well into the 1960s. And here's the deal. Phillips's interpretation of Southern history centered heavily upon the so-called benign interpretation of slavery. Phillips found evidence in plantation records and Southern travelogues that bolstered his interpretation of slavery while downplaying evidence that it did not. And his emphasis on the lack of large uprisings overlooked everyday resistance like work slowdowns, theft of items, and theft of self, which ultimately is what running away is defined as. So in Phillips's view, and I'm quoting him here, plantations were the best schools yet invented for mass training of that sort of inner and backwards people, which the bulk of the American Negroes represented. Again, that was a quote from Phillips. So according to Phillips, slaveholders were benevolent people who were backed into an unsound economic system and the people they held in bondage were largely grateful people who needed to be kept enslaved for racial control. Now, in a 1962 critique of Phillips' work, historian Reuben Kugler pointed to several admissions made by Phillips in his reporting of his travelogue sources. And I'm going to directly quote Kugler here. All right. In another instance of misreading Olmsted, Phillips used a story told to Olmsted by the executor of an estate. The executor related how a lazy slave became energetic when promised that he could buy his freedom by performing extra work. Phillips told only part of that story in which the freed, again still quoting, uh, Negro went north, did not like it there, and returned to Virginia. By not completing the tale, Phillips's version made it appear that the ex-slave preferred slavery to freedom. A reading of the complete narrative in Olmsted reveals that that person did not return to his ex-master. Actually, he went to a nearby place to work. I want to point out that I'm ending the quote here. So, unfortunately, something that interpreters of American slavery come across in comments and questions still to this day is the concept that Phillips used to justify bondage, where he reduced a vast and diverse people to a description of people who were, and I'm quoting him again here, quote, only four generations removed from the lowest degree of barbarism and savagery. In friendly contact with the whites in America, they have taken on a veneer of civilization, end quote. This type of nonsense is what was taught in American classrooms into the 1960s. And although Phillips was challenged by contemporary colleagues, most notably, uh, by the way, W.E.B. Du Bois, his interpretation of slavery was the primary interpretation taught from World War I into the 1960s, and his, was, and his work was used in textbooks well into that period. So from an opinion piece in the New York Times entitled The Historian Behind Slavery Apologists Like Kanye West, they look at a Southern Poverty Law Center report on how slavery is taught in public schools. And what's important in this report is that they show that the current pedagogy continues to, quote, focus on slavery from the perspective of whites, not the enslaved, 
while failing to connect the institution to the white supremacist beliefs that supported it. Textbooks often ignore slaveholders' desire to make money and too easily slip into grammatical constructions like Africans were brought to America, and those absolve the enslavers of their, of their actions. Now, we see occasional news stories to this day about how students are asked to list the pros and cons of slavery or to take part in a classroom role play where individual students are made, quote, slaves and others, quote, masters. And, you know, this is what we're seeing then and now, you know, like looking in Ulrich's time um, as the, you know, then and now in textbooks. To illustrate that point, I'm going to read a couple of passages from a textbook from the 50s and one closer to now. The first example comes from the textbook Virginia, History, Government, Geography, which was published in 1957. And what I'm reading here is a description of Virginia Indians as the textbook describes early Virginia history. Quote, War was the only method the Indians knew to settle disputes between tribes. Disputes over hunting grounds usually caused the wars. They seldom showed their enemies mercy, and they did not expect to receive any. They frequently tortured or burned to death prisoners who fell into their hands. We must not forget that Powhatan and the people of his land had not yet learned the teachings of Christianity. End quote. Oh, wow. Ouch. There is a problem with that. It's on pages 31 through 32, if you ever look at that. Now, while textbooks no longer use slurs to describe cultural and ethnic groups, we can still see concepts tied to those slurs pop up, like in the next account. So this is an example from a 2015 study conducted by a group known as the Texas Freedom Network. Um, they did a scholarly review of Texas textbook adoption choices. And what follows is a reading from that study. So the um, uh, textbook that they were looking at was um, actually from Worldview Software, Basic American History One, Pre-Columbian Years to Reconstruction. And they say, the text states, the early 1600s were an uncertain time for the colony of Virginia. It was a land of starvation and high death rates, one in which the Native Americans regularly launched merciless attacks against the colonists. So what's wrong with this passage? Well, they go on to say, while early Virginians did indeed endure attacks from Native Americans, this passage provides no context for understanding the complicated relationship between the two groups. So for instance, the Native Americans offered food in the time of starvation that followed the initial settlement and they tried to establish diplomatic relations on their own terms. Nonetheless, the English made their intentions plain by constructing a triangular fort from which they could fire in all directions. Again, still quoting, they set out to just take whatever they wanted, including food supplies followed by land. From the start, they used violence, including such instances as kidnapping the queen of one group known as the Pamunkeys, killing her children during the voyage back to Jamestown by throwing them into the water and shooting them. These events, plus the simple fact that the English were invaders, provide an essential context for the so-called massacre of 1622. That's an end quote. 
So the takeaway, by the way, is that while the tone and tenor of these two passages are different, that erroneous concept of the, quote, savage Indian still absolutely exists. So what are some of the best practices in teaching this type of history? I presume there are probably guidelines for how to interpret or bring in these subjects. Yeah, um, you know, there are a number of suggestions for frameworks of interpretation. And one of the best I've found comes from Tolerance.org and their Teaching Hard History Project. They also have a really great podcast, by the way. And they break down their framework as follows. So they start with looking at key concepts and they pinpoint 10 important ideas that all students must understand to truly grasp the historical significance of slavery. Um, you know, and they've got things that go well beyond elementary school into middle school, you know, and using these key concepts to serve as tools for educators so they can structure their teaching. Um, they also have 20 essential knowledge sections that identify an age-appropriate understanding for students to reach, and it tends to also outline additional information that will help them get there. And then they include primary source documents to supplement teaching um, and learning about American slavery, as well as fiction and nonfiction texts specifically designed for young readers. And, you know, they, they use um, uh, inquiry design mat models based on the college, career, and civic life, or C3 framework for social studies state standards. Here's just a few examples of their key concepts, by the way. Uh, slavery, which Europeans practiced before they invaded the Americas, was important to all colonial powers and existed in all North American colonies. Slavery and the slave trade were central to the development and growth of the colonial economies in what is now the United States. Protections for slavery were embedded in the founding documents, and slavers dominated the federal government, Supreme Court, and Senate from 1787 through 1860. This is important. Enslaved people resisted the efforts of their enslavers to reduce them to commodities in both revolutionary and everyday ways. And the experience of slavery varied depending on time, location, crop, labor performed, size of slaveholding, and gender. And one of their key concepts is that slavery was the central cause of the Civil War. Now, I know these concepts can be controversial to some, and we've seen a lot of discussion lately over how American history isn't patriotic enough or that it's too patriotic. But, you know, if we look at the depth and scope of how human history is relayed to its citizens and cultures, who is telling the story and why and how is as important to the actual things that happen. History, like humanity, isn't static, and we really should hope that it never becomes that way. So, Misty, you've given us a lot to think about here. Can you boil it down to one essential reason why it's important to have these histories told. And back to the emotional impact, it seems like it takes more of a toll on the interpreter bringing this history forward. So again, is there just one main point about why we should tell this these stories? I think one of the most important ones is representation. Um, you know, that's, if we're looking as 
historians and educators and to fully express the range and scope of history to as fully as we can represent the diversity of the peoples and places we teach about. And representation matters because this is the history of all of us. For instance, you know, it's been said, African-American history is American history. Native American history is American history. All of the stories we can tell, that's all of our history. One recent post by Colonial Williamsburg explored the history, for instance, of an intersex individual in 17th century Virginia named Thomas Thomasine Hall. And the author of this post, by the way, uses a preferred pronoun to describe the case. And I'm going to quote this here. In 1629, in the settlement of Warasoic, near James City, Virginia, there was an indentured servant going by the name of Thomas Hall. They were recently arrived in the colony, and their behavior and sexual identity caused a controversy in the settlement. Hall was reported to have alternatively dressed in men's and women's clothing, and when confronted and asked whether he were a man or a woman, Hall replied that they were both. Upon questioning and examination by members of Hall's community, Thomas Thomasine was alternatively declared a man, then a woman, then a man again before the case was sent to the general court in Jamestown to be decided upon. Now, the primary source, by the way, um, in this case is the general court's description of the case and their decision, which, by the way, was that it shall be published in the plantation where the said Hall liveth that he is a man and a woman. Hall was also compelled to wear man's apparel, only his head to be attired in a coif and a crosscloth with an apron before him. You know, that decision, it's a hard history to read, to be sure, um, but it's representative of the fact that intersex people have always been with us. Now, imagine if you're a child who is wondering if your community will accept you or not as an intersex person. Hopefully, they can come up with the following, and I'm going to fully quote Ren Tolson, who wrote this piece, because Ren put it so well. Quote, reading the descriptions in the court record to give a face to Thomas Thomasine Hall allows us to acknowledge their humanity, something they were largely denied by their community and this court ruling. We can acknowledge them as an intersex individual who identified as both a man and a woman, while also remembering their impact beyond that identity. We can rejoice in their life and the strings that connect them to others. Remember their teen years in London under the guardianship of an aunt who raised them. Honor their service and sacrifice as a veteran of the British military, whose familial devotion led them to follow their drafted brother into service. Admire their time as a tradesperson in England doing needlework and making bone lace and acknowledge their bravery in crossing an ocean to work on a plantation here in Virginia, becoming one of Virginia's earliest English settlers. Thomas Thomasine Hall was more than what this trial and the actions of their neighbors could show. You know, this history has always been here and we really do better to share it than to erase it or hide it.
what are some of the best practices we can employ when talking about art history? Well, we need to employ, first of all, as much source material as we can. We need to examine our potential sources, either archaeology, primary sources, uh, or oral histories, for bias. And we need to look for biases of our own. We need to work with and for marginalized communities and let them tell their history. We should always, always, always endeavor to give agency and humanity to the people we discuss. And we need to use proper terminology as well. Calling someone a slave is just giving them a role without humanity. Enslaved people were teachers, parents, children, doctors, prisoners, priests, converts, etc. Their owners shouldn't be referred to as masters either because this reduces the, the role of the enslaver as well. Um, we should also always try to remove emotion when it's proper, when it's proper, mind you, because we're not robots, from the discussion. Now, I know this is a tall order, but we can submit the evidence without drawing conclusions for our guests. But as we were talking about earlier, sometimes emotion can actually aid your interpretation or have an, a, a resonance with the guest. We just have to be careful, I guess is what you're saying. Right. When we're contextualizing our primary sources, we need to realize that guests might argue or they might reject what we're saying. And that's okay. Many of them have been lied to in their education, as we were talking about earlier. If we're going to take one thing away from them, can we give them something back? You know, this is a technique that requires constant reflection, by the way, and it's best done when we, as interpreters, share our experiences with each other and make suggestions for improvement. We also need to understand that some days a little self-care is in order. Now, defenders of exclusionist history are often vociferously defensive of what they were taught, but what they were taught was kind of a history with an era-appropriate agenda. This is history light because by avoiding a nuanced and empathetic reading of the historical sources as it pertained to the marginalized communities, the dominant culture was able to justify their place in society and the continued dismissal of said groups. So I think it should be noted also that we're constantly expanding on our toolkit as interpreters. We live in a time when so much more is available to us be it the expansion of uh, primary source availability through the digitization of, of documents and archives, um, the expansion of interdisciplinary tools and methods of research in, in fields like archaeology, the greater emphasis that we place now on working with and for marginalized communities, just as a few examples. We have the advantage of more fully emphasizing and realizing what we claim to be American concepts like freedom and opportunity when we utilize these tools. I think, perhaps, we might just have a future podcast on that subject alone. Thank you, Misty. That was certainly informative and something we will definitely bring you back to talk about further. I think there's a lot more to unpack and introduce to the listeners. Hopefully, you now have a better understanding of how much work and research goes into programs and even just daily interpretation at the Frontier Culture Museum. One last thing before you go. Here's a special announcement about an upcoming December 2020 event. Feel like you need a little holiday cheer, but you want to stay socially distanced? 
Look no further. Please join us at the Frontier Culture Museum's Old World Holiday Tours. You may recognize this as a COVID-friendly version for our traditional lantern tours. This year, all holiday-themed scenes will take place outdoors. Each theatrical scene features historic holiday traditions, including with sailing, street performers, music, and a surprise visit from two special figures of the Christmas season. Tours will be limited to 15 people to facilitate social distancing, with multiple tours going out every half hour between 4 o'clock to 7.30. Tours run from December 4th through 6th, 11th through the 13th, and 18th through the 20th. For the safety of everyone, visitors will be required to wear masks and maintain appropriate social distancing during the tour. Please visit our website or Facebook page for more information. To purchase tickets, you can call or visit our website. We look forward to seeing you all. So we hope you enjoyed Banjo Strings and Drinking Gourds. We bring you historical episodes twice a month. You can check out the Frontier Culture Museum online at FrontierMuseum.org, on Facebook and Instagram. You'll find background on all the farms at the museum, information on upcoming events, and so much more. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider visiting the website and clicking the Donate button. Donations to the American Frontier Culture Foundation support programs like field trips, summer camps, and special events. We greatly appreciate it. See you next time.